Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Please continue with your lunch, but in order to maximize the time that we have, we will begin. My name is Doug Kmeck from the Pepperdine Law School in Malibu, California, where the surf is always up and Ken's stars shine brightly. I'll laugh it up. I'll wait for the translation. <laughs> greetings from our beloved Dean Ken Starr, and also greetings from one of the most intelligent, one of the most lovely, one of the most energetic student chapter presidents in the country, my darling daughter, Kate. <laughs> uh, I should tell you that now that the doors are closed, this is a bit like a required class. You are locked in. Uh, and you will not be able to uh, leave until the end of the uh, presentation. Someone's contradicting me as we speak. But apparently there is a security effort that's taking place for the vice, presiden uh, vice presidential address uh, this, uh, this evening, which means that the conclusion of the program, I need to ask you to exit through the doors, go right past the metal detectors, and then re-enter through the metal detector. I'm not sure why that procedure is necessary. I think only the vice president will set off the metal detector, but he'll... Uh... Uh, you may be asking yourself, uh, what is this topic, the accreditation of law schools, doing in a symposium on limited government? After all, the ABA is not a government, and it is not limited. <laughs> I suppose some of the opponents of ABA accreditation would say, look up regulatory monopoly in the dictionary, and that's where you'll find it. And that is the rub. Uh, the debate this afternoon is a debate over whether ABA accreditation standards serve or disserve the primary purposes of legal education. And so one way I thought we would begin is by just simply having a multiple-choice quiz of what the primary purpose of legal education is. Is it A, the provision of competent legal services to the general public, B, an opportunity to take on massive student debt, <laughs> which in turn necessitates finding a professional position which precludes all meaningful social engagement, <laughs> C, a chance to become a member of the Federalist Society and thereby defend the Constitution as written while simultaneously ending your career for the judiciary. <laughs> but as our main speaker yesterday and my former office partner at Justice Sam Alito said, so what? He can speak, though. <laughs> or D, none of the above, and simply an opportunity to, do, to devote significant monetary resources to the study of catching foxes on wild and uninhabited lands, the rule against perpetuities, the shooting of spring guns, which I don't think you'll be allowed to bring back in through the metal detectors, and the unfortunate lot of children with thin, uh, thin skulls. Um, so which is it? Are these accreditation standards ensuring legal competence, uh, or are they barriers to entry that simply raise the cost of legal education and, in turn, the delivery of legal services. We have four excellent scholars this afternoon to present 
several different aspects of this debate from the more positive side toward regulation, but by no means totally endorsing of every jot and tittle of it, are Professor Thomas Morgan, the Oppenheimer Professor of Antitrust and Trade Regulation of the George Washington uh, University, and Dean John Siebert, who until recently uh, had served as the consultant on legal education for the American Bar Association, and John's role in that context was to be the primary administrator uh, and coordinator of the uh, ABA accreditation uh, process. Aligned against regulation, or at least more skeptical of it, is Professor John Baker, the Bennett Professor of Law at Louisiana State University. John is well known to the Federalist Society, and it may not be as well known, but also recently was the co-director of a study on accreditation standards for liberal education. And then Dean Saul Levmore, the dean of the University of Chicago Law School, whose research focuses on the behavioral effects of legal rules and who has characterized the ABA accreditation standards as, I think the kind way he put it, was misguided and excessive. Um, I want to just set the table very briefly with four arguments that are made in behalf of regulation and then the four counterpoints that one most frequently finds in the literature on this subject and then turn it over to the distinguished panel. The arguments in favor of regulation go something like this, that ABA accreditation is needed to protect the public from inadequately prepared graduates. Number two, that ABA accreditation standards are necessary in order to promote legal scholarship of the highest quality that is invaluable to the long-term health of the American Republic. Third, that ABA accreditation standards are in support of the rule of law and are invaluable to it. And fourth, that ABA accreditation standards supply valuable consumer information to students and employers alike about the comparative qualities of legal institutions. The counterpoints to these are, as you might guess, with respect to the first one, protecting the public from inadequately prepared law graduates. Most critics of ABA standards would point out that from their vantage point, the standards are largely focused on inputs rather than outputs, and by virtue of that, there is considerable expense associated with accreditation standards, whether they be expense for the library research facilities or other facilities in the building, or the money associated with keeping high-priced legal talent who can teach about the rule against perpetuity from wandering off to other law schools, various tenure requirements. Uh, but very little in terms of the evaluation of the actual effectiveness of the graduates that are leaving these programs. Number two, the uh, argument in favor, as you remember, was the promotion of quality legal scholarship. Most of the counterpoints here are not particularly complementary of legal scholarship. There's a, a sentiment that says much of what is written in the law reviews is of no help to the courts, of little help to practitioners, 
and is mostly devoted to commentary on divisive social issues that could just as easily be resolved by Chris Matthews. <laughs> the third argument in favor of accreditation standards, as you remember, was promotion of the rule of law, and the most telling co uh, counterpoint is one that merely cites the ABA's regulation on diversity, which is most recently um, reenacted as of last February, February 2006. Uh, it is a diversity regulation that many people will contend mandates racial preference, and mandates racial preference that, in fact, directly contradicts the state law that law schools may well confront. I will quote so that you don't think I'm making this up. Standard 211 provides that the requirements of a constitutional provision or statute that purports to prohibit consideration of race in admission or employment is not justification for a law school's noncompliance with Standard 211. So the fact that the people in California or Michigan may have decided otherwise or that non-discrimination statutes they seem to be to the contrary. The, the opponents of ABA regulation on the rule of law point simply hold out to you standard 211. And lastly, the issue of whether or not ABA accreditation standards provide information to employers and students. As a former dean of the law school, I can tell you that we treated the information that we received in the accreditation process as nothing short of classified information, and it was the equivalent of a state secret in a terrorist prosecution. It was not something that we were about to release. So why is there not a public outcry if there's so much criticism of these accreditation standards, why didn't it dominate the midterm elections <laughs> rather than Iraq? Part of it, I suppose, is that when you go to those retention ballots for the state Supreme Court, those same people who in over 45 states have required graduation from an ABA accredited law school in order to enter the profession, it just doesn't come to mind to register a no vote uh, because of that particular issue, or at least it doesn't to most of us. So perhaps we need to stir some uh, creative thinking, and notwithstanding Patrick Leahy's assessment of the Federalist Society, this is the best place to do that in America. So let's stir up our creative faculties, fire the rest of them, and begin, <laughs> and begin with Professor Tom Morgan. Thank you very much. Tom? Thank you, Doug. Uh, with all respect to uh, the way uh, Doug Kamek set up the uh, problem, I'm going to try to set it up uh, just a little differently. One can imagine a world without uh, lawyers, that is, a, a world without a group of people uh, uh, who are licensed uh, and certified uh, to have a special skill and to have certain jobs reserved to them. Uh, I think there's good reason to believe that in the future uh, there may be less need for specialized and certified lawyers. Uh, Non-lawyers will do many things that lawyers do today. And yet disappearance of lawyers or people designated as lawyers uh, it does not seem to be on the horizon. Once we concede the existence of a category of people called lawyers, 
And once we distinguish them in significant part by the special education they've received, it becomes necessary to define what constitutes that special education and who uh, uh, may uh, or who is certified uh, to satisfactorily uh, provide it. In our system, the responsibility for licensing lawyers and uh, certifying that they've received the appropriate training has fallen to state supreme courts, not the ABA, state supreme courts, the supreme courts of all of the jurisdictions uh, in the country, which is now more than 50 if you include uh, D.C. and federal districts and courts of appeals and, and so on. I believe, uh, and I suspect many members of the Federal Society believe, that that's a good thing. That is, that power over such an important aspect of American life has devolved to uh, state agencies and remains uh, at that level. Some state courts, uh, most notably California, have set up their own bodies to define what constitutes a legal education and what is sufficient for that purpose. And they certify or, or credit uh, state law schools uh, located in their jurisdiction. One of the problems with state accreditation, however, is that other states don't necessarily trust each other's educational judgment. And indeed, almost nobody uh, trusts uh, California's uh, educational <laughs> judgment uh, other than California in terms of, of state accreditation. That presents a real collective action problem. How do we create a world in which lawyers trained in one jurisdiction can practice in others, be admitted to the bar in other jurisdictions, in a world in which people don't uh, live within 10 miles of where they grew up, uh, but rather uh, a, a very vibrant uh, national and indeed uh, world economy. The way that's happened, largely by accident, uh, historical accident, is that each of the state Supreme Courts has concluded that a law school accredited by the American Bar Association uh, qualifies a graduate to take the uh, bar examination in their state and thus to become a lawyer in that state. No federal authority compelled the state Supreme Courts to do this. No one at the ABA had any authority or uh, responsibility to uh, persuade uh, states to, or to compel states at least to do this. So whatever many of us might believe about the ABA generally or particular fights we have with the ABA and other areas of their activities, uh, the fact is that 50 state Supreme Courts and other jurisdictions as well have concluded independently that graduates of schools uh, accredited by the ABA uh, are uh, appropriate for admission to the bar and indeed that the quality of those graduates is quite good. That doesn't mean that we should accept everything that uh, is in the current accreditation standards as appropriate. Uh, indeed, I'd suggest that uh, two significant questions ought to be applied to the standards that we have. First, is there a correspondence between those standards and the quality of legal training background uh, that we believe lawyers should have? And second, do the standards provide enough flexibility for schools to differentiate themselves and to 
uh, invent, find new ways, more effective ways, to deliver what they see as a quality legal education. In fairness, uh, in recent years, the ABA accreditation standards have become somewhat more uh, flexible and have allowed students uh, a greater flexibility than they once did. Perhaps the, the best illustration is one of the most bizarre standards to anybody reading them in the first time. And that is the requirement that to graduate from an ABA accredited law school, a student must have 58,000 minutes of legal instruction. That sounds like the strangest, uh, uh, most arbitrary requirement of all. And yet when you think about it, uh, that turns out to be approximately the 80 to 85 hours of uh, credit that most schools uh, require uh, and have required for many years. Uh, and by stating it in terms of minutes, it allows the school to uh, have the freedom to design many different lengths of classes, lengths of semesters, indeed numbers of semesters, than they formerly did. Uh, so that's one area in which the ABA has performed well. I expect John Siebert will uh, uh, suggest others. I think there are three main areas of concern, and to some extent, uh, Doug Kamek uh, uh, foreshadowed these. First is the requirement that each law school demonstrate a commitment to having a faculty and a student body that are diverse with respect to gender, race, and ethnicity, uh, and to do so even in the face of state law that prohibits consideration of those matters in hiring and admission. Uh, I don't have time to get into that now, but later I will be prepared to defend uh, that uh, standard, at least in part. Uh, largely on the basis that uh, any given state can have any rule they want, but if they're certifying people that other states have to accept as uh, candidates for admission to their bar, uh, they uh, uh, are not uh, entitled to impose their judgments on, on others. Second, uh, the second area of concern are requirements of tenure or tenure-like status <coughs> for all faculty uh, including uh, clinical, uh, legal writing faculty, uh, as well as deans, regular faculty, uh, librarians, uh, without an obvious link as to how that status relates to the performance of the job uh, that uh, they're assigned to do. And the third category are some very specific requirements as to curriculum in ABA accredited law schools. One of them, for example, is the use of live client uh, tr uh, training in, uh, in clinics as opposed to simply uh, simulation or uh, other kinds of, uh, of training. Uh, second is a specific training in the American Bar Association's model rules of professional conduct. Uh, it's the only book that is uh, specifically required uh, that uh, uh, everybody use as the basis of a particular kind of education. So the bottom line of my presentation is that the ABA accreditation process is likely to be here to stay because it meets the needs of a decentralized system of actual lawyer regulation. Somebody better could come along, something better could come along, but the switching costs are enormous once this, uh, this system that contributes to a free flow of lawyers and a free flow of licensing of lawyers uh, has become so important uh, and so central to the, uh, the country. Until uh, we find some replacement, however, our task should be to try to identify standards that can be improved and then to get to work on changing them.
Thank you. Thank you, Tom. <laughs> we'll now hear from Professor Baker. Last night, uh, Justice Alito quoted President Reagan about the impact of the Federalist Society on the legal culture of law schools. The Justice went on to say that, unfortunately, President Reagan may have been wrong in this area, that really the legal culture of law schools has not significantly changed. And I would add that the reason is the lock that the ABA has on accreditation. Now, the first thing I want to do is to distinguish between the section on legal education and the ABA more generally. Some in this room may find this difficult to believe, but generally, the ABA is more open to diversity of opinion and intellectual approach today than they were some years ago. I would add, largely thanks to the Federalist Society. And I say that because although I've spoken at the ABA events a number of times, most recently I did so when the specific request went out for someone from the Federalist Society to address the group. And after the address, many people said, this is a wonderful event to have a different opinion. <laughs> it was the best program they said they had to have a different opinion. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not exaggerating the openness of the ABA generally. I was outgunned three to one on the same subject we had this morning where we had a much more balanced panel. And indeed, this panel is more balanced. But you got to give them credit for the direction they're moving in. The section on legal education needs the same kind of competitive challenge in order for it to open itself to the intellectual diversity that's out there. The point is that competition is good for both. The fact is that the section on legal education has responded not to the power of ideas, but to the power of interest groups, and more importantly, maybe, the power of the antitrust division of the Justice Department, which has overseen the ABA section for the last 10 years during which certain changes have been made. I want to go quickly over three things, the structure of accreditation, how it's actually applied, and what some of the solutions might be. As already mentioned about the, the state bar, state Supreme Court involvement, many of you may not know about the involvement of the Department of Education. <clears throat> Education generally, through a federal statute, authorizes certain agencies to be the authorized accrediting agency for purposes of monitoring compliance with educational standards for those institutions that receive federal funding in some form, student aid, et cetera. I happen to have worked for an agency that did such a thing at the undergraduate level. Now, this is a different thing, but it is in a way related to the other function. And one of the things that we did as a separate agency, we were a competing agency that gave undergraduate schools an out from the political correctness that was being imposed by regional accreditors. And what is needed, in my view, is a competing situation where law schools are not in the kind of lock that they're in. The issue comes down to competence, character, ideology. Now, just imagine if the lock on accreditation was given to the Federalist Society 
there'd be yelling and screaming. The Federalist Society wouldn't do it, shouldn't do it. Why? We clearly state we are a group of conservative and libertarian lawyers. Now, there are other people who should be entitled to practice law. The problem with the ABA is that it is an ideological organization that is importing its ideology into the standards on accreditation. That's the fundamental problem. Now, it is one thing to say that the standards are left to state Supreme Courts and that it is a problem from state to state and that this is a coordinating body so that one state knows what the qualifications are of a lawyer from another state. But wait a minute. Let's look at it this way. Suppose you're a state Supreme Court filled with Federalist judges and you decide that maybe the ABA would not be the best accrediting agency or at least we ought to have an accreditor and you're the demon of a law school in that state. Can you afford not to have ABA accreditation when your students would not be able to go to another state to take the bar exam? That's the fundamental lock. And it goes through the antitrust exception that state, age, that state entities have. If it weren't for those exemptions, we would recognize this cartel for what it is. Well, we're going to hear from John Siebert that there's all kinds of flexibility in these new standards. Let me tell you on a different standard, not just 211. And John has answered all the criticisms on 211. He says there's no requirement for uh, quotas. There is no uh, uh, critical mass required. There is uh, no violation of state law required. But all litigators know one thing very important. Everything depends on who has the burden of proof. And the key is that the school must demonstrate a commitment to diversity. Now, let me tell you how they practice this when it comes, for instance, to the requirement that you already heard about live client. The standard says you have to either have clinical or live client experience. Our law faculty, and I'm not speaking for our law school, but our law faculty doesn't like clinical. The ABA likes clinical. We like simulation. We like live client. We like other things. We list all of these things, and every time they come back and they say, you have these numbers and these numbers, we conclude you don't meet the standard. It's a numbers game. They'll say it's not a numbers game. I have the letters that show it's a numbers game. So whatever the standards say, the reality is it's in the enforcement. That's where it rests. Is there any kind of solution to this? Well, the outgoing head of the section has indicated, has recognized, there are some real problems. Let me just read from, how much time have I got? One minute. Stephen Smith, okay. The current, the current system is a victim of its own success. The ability to enforce meaningful standards has led groups to seek to use the accreditation process for their own narrow purposes. Such claims are made, for example, about deans, faculties, clinicians, legal writing instructors, and librarians. The whole thing has become very politicized, and that's what happens when you don't have adequate competition. What's the possible solution? The ABA is up for reauthorization for, before the Department of Education. There's a hearing on December 4th. Gail Harriet, who's here, Roger Clegg, have been involved in this. The question is whether DOE should reauthorize the ABA to be the agency for federal purposes 
for law schools. It's unlikely that they will be denied that. But there are other options. The department could look for, encourage a competitor, or maybe the department could get from them some kind of concession that there could be an A track and a B track. An A track, we might call the gold star track, you comply with all of these other standards that are controversial. The B track might well be for those who simply want to look at the question of competence and then leave to their local state supreme courts and their local bar associations the question of character. I would urge all of you who think that there should be more competition in this to write or email Secretary Spellings and give her the benefit of your opinion. But it may be that ultimately our best hope is with the Washington Post. <laughs> One of the places that most ABA accredited law schools do not like is Concord Law School, an online law school mostly operating in California because they can't get out of California. But it is owned by a subsidiary of the Washington Post. And if the Bush administration would move for competition in this area, I think they could finally win the praise of the Washington Post. Thank you very much. Thank you, John. We'll hear from Dean Levmore. Uh, thank you. I'm surprised, actually, to see so many people turn out for uh, a session on a topic like this. Uh, but maybe you needed lunch uh, one place or the other. Uh, but that's good. You've come to the right place, and uh, the alignment is about right. I agree, I think, with uh, everything uh, that John Baker uh, has said. Uh, I probably won't say it as well, but I'll try to give a couple of examples. And then I'll also share the sense that although you might have some outrage, you should take a little step back and think, you know, the question is whether the world could really look other than the way uh, it does. So here's the way the world looks. It's unsurprising to me. It's most people, maybe even most people in this room, but certainly most people in law or consumers uh, are uncomfortable with the idea of anybody being able to call themselves a lawyer, an engineer, or a doctor, or a nurse. I just pick four typically accredited, regulated uh, professions. You can imagine a competitive world where people develop brand names and all that, but that seems a long way uh, from here. And then the step is, well, how do you get regulated? Well, one possibility is measuring output. You could have state exams. That's true, say, for engineering, for architecture, and so forth. Uh, the problem is even that uh, sets up other political groups. Uh, you know, take the students. I'm at the University of Chicago. We have great students. I like to think that we add a lot of value to their education, but we do. But, uh, you know, I'll sound a little bit like Stanley Kaplan or something. I don't think any state bar can come up with an exam that our students can't pass, say, with 98 or 99 percent, if they want local law schools to pass the bar as well. So there are people who, self you know, who are selected into these elite law schools who have a lot of skills, but one of those skills is they're very, very good at taking exams. And all these output you know, measures, if somebody wants a startup law school to succeed if it does a good job but fail if it does a bad job, and it tries to construct an exam, that has people out of that law school pass and fail in order to sort them and in the long run tell applicants whether to go to that law school or not, they're sort of stuck. Um, you know, I, I went to Yale Law School as a student. You know, I never took property. That won't surprise uh, many of you. Um, I, 
Uh, there are lots of things I never took that I know nothing about. I, I took the tyranny of Kant. I mean, I took a lot of courses. <laughs> uh, you think I'm kidding. I'm, I'm not. Um, <clears throat> right? Well, there's no, you know, no state in trying to figure out you know, how to decide whether the living room law school is a good law school or not and it's produced the right thing. They can't really come up with an exam that does a good job uh, that also, you know, everybody at Yale won't pass. So they have no real control of what the Yale Law School does except by monitoring what Yale Law School does more directly. And, for, you know, you could imagine a world where they didn't do that, right, where regulators got together and said, well, okay, we've solved this collective action problem that Tom Morgan discussed correctly, I think, by having the ABA or some national quasi-accrediting agency do, certify, but then, well, it'll just be that there's some schools out there where everybody's going to pass the bar exam that we just won't have any influence over. So let them do whatever they want. But that's unrealistic. What really happens is as people join these organizations, either professionally or in a volunteer capacity, and as they start thinking, well, what would make a law school good enough so that it's a law school? We don't want anyone being trained in Smith's living room to just call themselves a lawyer or an engineer. As soon as they start doing that, you know, everybody's got their own preferences. And that is really, I think, where the ABA and the section on legal education is now. Don't, don't be surprised. It's people come and they say, they start out by saying, everyone should not be able to call themselves a lawyer. And then these are lawyers that get together. And then they move to, oh, you should require this and you should require that. And every once in a while, there are a lot of meetings. And people say, oh, I guess it was too much to require 7.3 linear feet of space in the library for each this. Oh, we'll cut back on that a little bit, and then we'll add this, and we'll add that. There's constant regulation. These schools are preparing you know, mounds and mounds of paperwork, this is not an exaggeration, to respond to each site visit and all that. It's an enormous regulatory apparatus, all presumably in order to seem even-handed in saying to a few startup law schools, you know, you look a little bit too much like some guy in his living room is trying to turn out lawyers uh, left and right. I, I don't know that we'll find an easy solution to that, but I think you have to understand that's sort of the way the picture is, and it's not, uh, it's not a surprising um, picture. So let me report a few things to you. I am currently the president of this thing called the American Law Deans Association, which also might sound like an interest group. But if we're at a deans meeting, and you, know, you have 150 deans in the room, and we're going on about, well, let's send letters to the Department of Education, the Department of Justice, and this regulation is crazy. You know, who are the deans in the room that stand up and say, no, 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 I love the regulatory system. Trust me, I've been the dean at five law schools. It's really a great system. These are inevitably the deans, very well-meaning, they are the deans of law schools that just got over the regulatory barrier. If you just make it over the regulatory barrier, now you have a library of the right size, and you've been diversity to the right size, and legal writing to the right size, and clinic to the right size, you don't want that guy across the railroad tracks opening up a law school that can compete with you without meeting all these requirements. All of a sudden, these people become the biggest fans of regulation. The deans of secure major law schools with 95% bar passage rate have no interest in this regulatory apparatus. This gets me nervous that it's anti-competitive to the extreme. The other thing that should get us nervous is if you survey provosts or presidents of universities and you say, how does lawyer accreditation compare to other fields? I, I have surveyed many of them. They will all say, oh, there's no comparison. There is no, we never hear from the engineering school or the nursing school or the medical school, you know, we have to do the following when we hire faculty because otherwise our accreditation will be threatened. Market seems to work pretty well, including the output exam, right? They've got to take an exam 
to be a pediatrician or something. That exam, that output measure, and the market seems to work really quite well. It's only law schools that are constantly burdening their central administrations with we're required to do this and that. Again, a real red flag to me that this is quite anti-competitive or bureaucratic out of control is really um, the way I would describe it. By well-meaning people, but each person's got a different interest group. Go to one of these meetings, the room is circled with uh, the clinic representative, the legal writing representative, the this representative. The, it's a bunch of interest groups all getting together saying, you know, we really think we know what's good for America. What's good is to have more X. Oh, I happen to do X. You know, legislate more X. <laughs> legislate more X uh, for uh, everyone. Uh, good luck in the attempt uh, at deregulation, but I see my time is up, and thank you. Dean John Siebert. Uh, thank you. First, uh, let me make clear that although I've just completed six years as the ABA consultant on legal education, my remarks today represent my personal views and not the views of the section of legal education and, and admissions to the bar. Uh, and let me begin by agreeing with some of the comments of uh, some of the previous speakers. I very much agree with Tom Morgan, for example, that the two... <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute. That, that, that the two primary tests for the validity of a particular standard or the standards as a whole as to whether, one, they contribute to appropriate minimum standards for high-quality legal education, and two, do they give law schools as much flexibility as possible <coughs> to design and create their own programs within the general parameters of the standards. Uh, getting to that ideal is neither easy nor simple. And I agree with Saul that there are in the current standards a number of standards that probably are unnecessarily detailed and prescriptive, a number of standards that attempt to regulate matters that are best left to the judgment of law school faculty and deans. We, I think each of us has our own laundry list of what those standards are, and maybe later uh, we'll get into some of that. But let me help you understand a little bit the dynamics of the standard setting, standards revisions uh, process. When the standards initially were promulgated in 1921, they were very bare bones. There was then a major revision of the standards in the 1970s. The result of that revision were standards that were very detailed, very prescriptive, in part uh, for the purpose of providing guidance to the many new law schools that were developing to meet the huge increase in applications to law schools that occurred at that time. Others may attribute additional or different motivations to the regulatory system at that time, but I'm not going there. Um, by the mid-1990s, there was a lot of criticism of the standards from a wide range of, of sources a as being um, too detailed and prescriptive, uh, interfering with creativity and innovation. We all know the reputations that law faculties have for being innovative. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. 
um, and uh, arguably unnecessarily uh, increasing the costs of legal education. I think it's fair to say that over the past 10 years, the history of the standards revision process during that period has been largely an attempt to respond with some success, but I think albeit modest success, to those types of criticisms. In, in, in addition to some of the things others have mentioned, uh, the requirements concerning the format and nature of the law library collection are very much more general now than they were. They give law schools large amounts of discretion with how to design and implement their law libraries. The gravamen of the test now, and that's the way the accreditation committee has been applying it, is do the law library collection and services adequately meet the needs of this school's faculty and students? I think that's basically what it ought to be, and I think they've made good progress uh, there. Schools have much more latitude than they now have than they previously had in using distance education. No, Concord can't yet apply, but there were major uh, relaxation of the restrictions in 2002. And the thing that really has surprised me there is that so few law schools are using the flexibility that they presently have under the standards to the maximum uh, to use distance education to reduce cost and work in collaboration with other law schools. There's only one law school in the country, one ABA-approved law school in the country, that has indicated that the distance education standards bind them, and that school is actually presently being considered for a variance that, that if granted, would allow for an experiment that would provide the basis for evaluating the efficacy of using distance education more broadly uh, in the curriculum. Um, in the early 1990s, the council adopted a very detailed set of standards that govern externships. Unfortunately, they did so because law schools were just abdicating their responsibility. There was huge numbers of law schools in which externship programs were being run with lack of supervision, highly uneven quality. They were given away credits. But what has happened over the last two revisions is that those externship standards have been by significant ways relaxed, leaving much more to the discretion of law schools to, in fact, control the quality of their externship uh, programs. Um, restrictions on academic calendars have been lessened, not only in the way Tom mentioned, but now they've been lessened such that schools like Dayton can do an experimental program in which students get the JD degree in five fairly intensive semesters over, uh, over four, four years, I'm sorry, over a maximum of two years rather than what is the usual required um, three. People will be looking at that. I think it's going to work. They've got a well-designed system. They couldn't have done it until the standards, before the standards had been uh, changed. Um, <clears throat> council is also provided a lot more guidance on variances. I'm hoping that a lot of schools will look at that and come to the council and say, we've got an experimental program that doesn't meet your current standards that we want to try, and then I hope the council will be willing in a reasonable number of circumstances to grant those variances so that we can test 
models of legal education that don't happen uh, to meet, uh, meet the standards. Nonetheless, I think all of us will agree, at least I do, that there are still too many standards that are unnecessary or they are unnecessarily detailed. Uh, they may stifle what creativity exists uh, in law schools, and they may unnecessarily increase the cost of legal education. And again, I think later on we'll be mentioning some of these things. But let me remind you of some of the additional factors and pressures that exist in a standards revision process that, if not barriers to change, at least uh, are forces that may make change come less quickly than one would want. In addition to the interest groups within the academy that I think people have, have mentioned, the deans, the clinicians, the librarians, and others. The council has to pay careful attention to the views of the Supreme Courts and to the reviews of the Bar Admission Committee that implement the Supreme Court's requirements. Practitioners, bar administrators, judges are all represented as they should be on the decision-making bodies of the section. And while the deans often argue for less regulation, some of those other in constituencies get very concerned when there's a discussion of something that they consider to be significant deregulation because they think that that will create problems with respect to assuring appropriate minimum quality. That's a problem in this type. Maybe it's not a problem, but it's certainly a fact in this uh, process. Um, not all law schools are as good as those represented on this panel. And one of the things the council has to think about is does it have standards that allow it to appropriately have oversight over that relatively small number of law schools that have problems, particularly serious problems in bar admission and attrition. And then they have to design the standards so that they can deal with those problems, and then they have to apply those standards consistently to every law school, not only because the council believes that it ought to have a unitary set of standards, but because the Department of Education will require the council to apply its standards consistently to all law schools. That's a problem as far as um, achieving um, simplification. Actually, I think the problems of achieving simplification, simplification in the standards are very similar to those uh, of uh, achieving simplification in the tax code. Thanks. We now uh, have brief rebuttals by each member of the panel. I would, uh, to start that off, it seems to me that I've heard uh, two arguments that uh, need further exploration. One is that the ABA, shockingly enough, is an ideological organization that has, has an ideological agenda and that that agenda is being imposed through the regulatory structure. So if the uh, defenders of the regulation could, uh, in their replies, uh, say something as to that issue, I think it would be useful. 
And second, uh, a degree of candor. I think every econ economist that has looked at the regulatory structure concludes that two distinct groups would be worse off uh, economically in the absence of ABA regulation. They are existing lawyers and existing law faculty because it would be less expensive to produce more lawyers if regulation was eliminated or reduced and a number of law faculty would in fact be less secure if in fact the regulatory tenure uh, structure did not exist. So given that reality and the vested interest of everyone in this room, including myself, how do these things change? So in the context of replies, I'll let Tom begin. Uh, thank you. Uh, I uh, would simply use my rebuttal time to agree with uh, uh, both uh, John and uh, Saul, uh, at least on points where I think we do uh, share uh, uh, a recognition uh, of uh, common issues. First, I agree with John that uh, competition would be fine uh, in uh, accreditation. Indeed, we have some of it now through the state regulatory schemes, a uh, limited number, but Massachusetts has one, California has one. A number of states have latent schemes in that they still allow reading law in uh, uh, law firms. Uh, so there are some competing models. They simply have not captured the uh, attention of uh, or the satisfaction of a sufficient number of Supreme Courts to, uh, to be uh, particularly significant. Uh, if the Department of Education has a competing organization uh, or a group of organizations that they think can help them protect the investment they make when they provide money to, to universities or to uh, students, uh, help them be sure that they're getting value for dollar, whether it's the Concord Law School or some other, more power to them. I don't think that's the area that uh, we're uh, disputing. I also agree with Saul uh, that uh, there is... Uh, unquestioned uh, capacity for regulatory capture in this area. Lots of illustrations of it. Uh, it's an issue that you always have to resist, and it's an issue that's in, almost intractable. It's extremely hard to overcome, and I would include both of the questions that Doug asked in that category. Uh, the fact is we do have existing people who are benefited uh, by the rules, uh, and you would expect that people uh, who are in a position to make rules are going to tend to see the rules they make through their ideological lenses. Uh, that isn't to defend it. It's something that I agree we need to address. But you need to address it much more concretely than simply to make that generic observation. That generic observation applies to virtually any regulatory scheme. and. Uh, uh, you, we just have to, to try to, uh, to overcome it. As I said before, I don't think we can avoid a regulatory scheme in this area. Third, uh, uh, I agree with uh, uh, Saul that uh, our system is more intrusive than most uh, uh, accreditation systems. And I'd suggest to you that there's a history to that uh, that you may like or not like. Law schools at many universities are cash cows. They are places that uh, are viewed by the president of the university as providing support to lots of other parts of the university, and there are a lot of law schools, law faculty, lawyers, and all who've resisted that. And one of the ways that uh, law schools have defended themselves against universities is to establish a very uh, uh, 
substantial uh, body of quite specific rules. That isn't to defend it, but it's simply to try to explain that that's part of the, the if you want to call it regulatory capture or defense of the, uh, the importance uh, of legal education that, uh, that we're working with. Once again, the question comes back to, do we really need tenure for all those people? And I think the answer is no. Uh, do we really need all the, or, or any real specification of particular requirements for particular uh, courses? I think the answer is no. Third, do we need diversity standards? That's an area that might be worth discussion in, uh, in some later conversation. So I think I've just heard we're abolishing tenure and curriculum requirements. Well, I'm, uh, I think that's, that's very worth, uh, worth talking about. Uh, not, to, not to say that every school would do it. What I am saying is that one might well say that in order to be a school that produces lawyers that ought to be recognized by state supreme courts all over the country, it might not be that uh, they had to have been educated by uh, exclusively by faculty who have tenure or tenure-like status. John? Well, even though neither Tom nor John agreed with anything I said, apparently, uh, I do find agreement with some of the things they said. One, I agree with Tom that you can't avoid regulation. And I also agree that law schools use the regulatory process and being faulted by the ADA to go to their presidents and say we need more money, we need a new building. So, it, you know, this is a game that goes on. And also that this isn't unique to, to law schools. I mean, it affects, it affects every other place that's regulated, certainly in education. Uh, John mentioned that many law schools had not, for instance, taken advantage of the flexibility the ABA has offered in distance education. I've done a lot in distance education. And my colleagues at my law school and others' law schools are not likely to do it, not just because they don't particularly like distance education. It's just that faculties are not likely to change on anything. Uh, and, and the real problem is that faculties are so set in their ways once they get tenure that it's a very uncreative uh, atmosphere. And it's certainly the worst thing you can be in legal academia as an entrepreneur. I mean, if you have a new idea about doing something, forget getting it by the faculty. I mean, it's, it's highly unlikely. Now, what this means is that we have a stifled system all the way through. I mean, it, it, the idea that you could get any change in the, in the legal world is very, very difficult within, within the, uh, the current situation. Uh, I disagree with, with John about the flexibility on a externships. I mean, I've got his letters to, <laughs> to rebut that. But the, the point is that externships, for instance, are a good example of where, for instance, practitioners have gone and insisted law school's got to do more in the way of teaching uh, practical skills. Fine, but they don't understand that the way this works out is that it can be worked through an agenda. Namely, what's the agenda here? You know, why aren't legal externships as good as clinical? Because some people think, namely clinicians, that you ought to hire tenured clinical faculty. Well, you know, I had some involvement with, with uh, legal services back in the Reagan administration, and we all knew that the tie between the left and legal services and clinicians was very real. So this is just part of an agenda to force into faculties, just as 211 is, to force into faculties a certain ideological viewpoint. The fact is, 
that if you apply these standards, you're not guaranteed that any particular faculty member will be on the left, although John McGinnis's studies show that the numbers are pretty strong. But if you make law school faculties fish in the same ideological pond, guess what? We're going to have the same kind of and more left-leaning law faculties than we have now. And it's largely due to these standards and the inability of anybody else really to come along realistically and put forward another model. It's difficult. I mean, the top law schools have nothing to fear. It is the lower-level law schools that have a lot to fear from change. Many deans are scared to death that if Concord Law School ever gets accredited, that the whole world will end up with the top 20 law schools and then distance education. That's the real fear out there on the part of many people in legal education. Well, since the reform's apparently not happening from the bottom up, uh, I'd hate to be someone at a limited government uh, conference to suggest something top-down. Uh, but there, is there any possibility, Saul, about uh, state Supreme Courts uh, modifying these measures toward a more competitive posture that adopts a performance standard rather than the standards that the ABA has promulgated? Well, that's a good question. I don't think so unless the ABA would push it. I mean, you could imagine a world in which the ABA went to the, on its own, said, we're going to start grading state bars. You know, we will grade the Supreme Court about how good their exams are. We think the following 38 states have pretty good bar exams, and the other 12 is a joke. Consumer fraud isn't solved. And that might make the output measure, you know, a lot better. But short of that, I think, you know, all these people, you know, are, they're alike in a sense in their view of the world. It's, oh, a little bit of change here, a little bit of change there. Five years from now, we'll allow 1% distance learning. Oh, we're so proud of the fact that we don't require you to use that book anymore. I mean, these are tiny, tiny changes. I mean, the, the world is just in for a shock, you know, and it is the lower the local law schools that will have the most trouble. I mean, and now not to answer the question, I'll say, you know, the whole world is going to change. I mean, you know, law firm will outsource soon, right? I mean, I think a huge amount of work that our graduates are doing will be done by people in India and China in a short period of time. You know, it'll be a very, very brave state bar that says, if you undertake a merger in our state, you have to sign a document that says you didn't get advice from anybody who wasn't a member of the bar. I mean, that will just really seem shocking and anti-competitive and all that. You get in a room with these ABA people and you say, you know, there's somebody from Australia that wants to come sit for the bar. They go, that can't be. We have to stop that right away. You know, they're, well, okay, you know, stop it. Right now it is stopped. You know, they didn't go to an ABA accredited law school. No one's going to Sydney to see whether their blackboards are the right size. <laughs> That's how the ABA accredits foreign study programs. Don't, don't laugh. That is what they do. Uh, you know, that, that world just isn't going to last long at the high level. At the lower level, could states say you can't do a closing on a real estate transaction unless you went to an accredited law school? You bet. And then lawyers at that level will fight the way dental hygienists have fought. And mostly the dentists have won. You know, for 20 or 30 years, it's really hard to get your teeth cleaned in most states without the dentist having to w have the right to walk in the room and supervise you know, whether you're being flossed correctly. Uh, <laughs> you know, that's a very costly system and not one I think we should be proud of, but that probably is the future of this regulation. At the high end, outsourcing. At the low end, you know, we will not succeed in deregulating. Well, John, is it really pulling teeth? 
at some level, it, uh, Saul, Saul, did you want to continue? No, I, I want to admire the pulling teeth joke. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, sure. Look, I'm not naive. Very few people in this room are naive. There are a lot of interest groups that seek to find ways to get their views prevailing uh, in the standards. That's politics. <coughs> the question then for the council, with its relatively broad representation, is to what extent it's going to be able to um, put aside some of the special pleading and seriously consider some revisions. Uh, Bill Rakes, who's standing in the back and is the, uh, sorry Bill, is the current chair of the council, um, has appointed a task force that, well, over the past three years, we've looked at the margins, I think, in trying to do a some revisions of, of the standards, did a comprehensive revision. Some issues we took on, some mega issues we didn't. Bill has asked this task force to make some recommendations to the council by June as to whether or not there are some more significant, broader issues that the council might want to reconsider. Um, I have my own list of some of those sometimes broader, sometimes more narrow issues that I myself would like the council to consider. I, I, for example, think that the time of regulation of job status is probably past and that it would be good if the council seriously considered eliminating those requirements. When the clinical faculty status provisions came up in the standards in the mid-80s, that contributed not the only force, but contributed to a significant change in the clinical professoriate. You suddenly had many more clinical faculty who were also interested in doing a broad range of scholarship, and because those people got interested in clinical faculty because they had some assurance of status, you now have a clinical professoriate around the country where there's a large percentage of them who do interesting scholarship in addition to their teaching, who teach traditional as well as, as clinical courses and have become full members of the professoriate. I think that's good, but I think regulation in that area may no longer be necessary. I also agree with, with Tom. Maybe, maybe we should uh, not require tenure either. I mean, the, the ABA standards are, to my knowledge, the only standards uh, of professional accrediting organizations that require tenure. Now, the key issue, if you think about getting rid of tenure, is can you adequately protect academic freedom without a system of tenure? I personally think you can, but a lot of very strong voices, particularly that, those of our friends at the Association of American Law Schools, would vehemently disagree with that. And you also have to recognize that if tenure disappeared from the standards, the vast bulk of law schools would still have tenure systems because they're part of universities that have tenure systems. And then you have to say, well, should the standards require that if you have a tenure system, you assure that that all classes of full-time faculty or the bulk of classes of full-time faculty are entitled to be considered? I don't know the answer to that, but that's the type of question uh, you consider. On, on some, I, I also have no particular brief for the library director security of position requirement or some of the particular... 
co-curricular – these are my personal views, okay? So um, maybe, like, maybe we should uh, give a chance to the, to the audience at this point to ask uh, questions. We have a number of – well, we have at least one microphone uh, right here, and, is there, and there may be another one somewhere. You can't leave the room, so you might as well ask a question. <laughs> there a, there's a question back there. Will you come up to the microphone? Go right ahead, sir. You have the floor. Okay. Um, I think that a, a panel, uh, while you, you asked about the ironies of this being a limited government panel, uh, it did descend a little bit into an art of the possible rather than really comparing this exercise to limited government. And I'd like to take Saul one step further uh, in suggesting that, it, you know, whether it was possible to just have serious exams, in a sense, uh, it, it, that would indicate the, the state of the law school. I mean, I'm a plumber. You know, I learn on the job. You know, I don't understand why, if we have serious exams, law schools are necessary, and that puts you in the category of providing X and, and liking the bar of X being required before you can take the, uh, the law exam. No, I have nothing against a good exam. No. I'm, I'm not creating any hurdles for you. Right. Okay, but uh, so a good exam without the necessity necessarily of graduating from a law yeah, school. I think it is. Yeah. In fact, it will be difficult to come up with this exam. Again, I think in the real world, that's where we are now because you can go get your legal advice in lots of countries if you want. I like to think that we will create students and scholarship that people will want to buy. But, you know, you can go to a law school that's a lot cheaper than ours. So we're not hiding behind uh, the hurdles. Uh, again, I think that's not true for all law schools, and, and I appreciate that. And, and it's difficult. I might not want to go to it. I don't know anything about my dentist other than the fact that the dentist has a dental degree and that Richard Epstein recommended the dentist to me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I... You know, I'm not sure that, you know, it might be that in a world where there was no dental accreditation, I might have spent more resources researching my dentist. I, I'm not really sure. That is, it is hard to imagine these alternative universes with no accreditation. But, boy, getting from here to there, it, it seems easy that we should be going at least halfway there. You know, it just can't be that the right state of the world is one where there's more accreditation standard. I'm becoming a lawyer than I'm becoming all these other things. It's just, it's just kooky. I know my faculty will be delighted when I report that the consensus of the room was to take away tenure. <laughs> no, no, not take it away, just not required. <laughs> not required tenure. Next question. Yes. I wanted to ask Dean Siebert, um, other than the drastic remedy of revoking accreditation or knocking a law school down to provisional accreditation, what, what real uh, leverage does the section on legal education have with, for a law school who is egregiously violating standards or even violating standards minimally? What, what really can the section do? When the accreditation committee reviews the site evaluation report and concludes that the school's not in compliance with the standards, it asks it to report back. That takes about nine months to report back. If it's still not in, in compliance with the standards, uh, the committee calls the president and dean in, a little bit of jawboning, and if things get worse, uh, the committee can recommend the council place a school on probation. There are two ABA-approved schools that currently are on probation, uh, and eventually uh, can pull the plug. And I think that that final um, recourse—I mean, the school, the, the council actually did that to one 
provisionally approved school during the past six years that came up to the end of the uh, five-year period of provisional and was in serious noncompliance with some of the standards, I think it will happen more frequently over the next few years. Yes, ma'am. Good morning. Uh, I'm going to relate maybe to the ABA standards. I'm not really sure of them, but uh, they're saying that the whole judicial system needs to be erased, judges removed, and restaffed because it's so corrupt. Uh, Case in point, how does the ABA standards, how does that affect a lawyer that's out here in the courtrooms and judges who are handing down erroneous decisions, uh, abdicating their responsibility to the clients by throwing cases? Does that touch on that at all? I'd like to... The standards that we're talking about today are the standards that law schools have to have to comply with. So it, it, those They're standards out of your say, say nothing uh, af- about uh, post-law school. But I like your idea. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> listen. After you've been screwed in the court, and the lawyer—no, I'm serious. I'm, un- I'm understanding jury, completely. And uh, they, the jury asked the lawyer, uh, "Can we hear some more information on your client?" We want to be sure about this judgment. And he says, no. He's throwing the case. And I'm sitting there looking. I can do nothing because I don't have the capital to pursue it. But it's it's wrong. (laughs) Thank you for your question. Yes, sir. It strikes me, listening to you gentlemen, that this organization, the Federalist Society, exists because of the perceived capture of mainstream academia and legal academe (laughs) <laughs> by a particular political ideology a couple of decades ago. Uh, I perceive a shift now because our organization has grown substantially and has representation on many, many law school campuses toward what I would consider a more balanced uh, mainstream legal academic environment. But uh, given that fact uh, and the reality that a lot of legal training occurs post-law school, <laughs> So the, real, the first real barrier that law students certainly face, I think, is probably still the, the bar exam. That's the gold standard still. And the fact that a lot of what we learn occurs after that is passed, and it kind of moves from your purview. Uh, uh, what about the notion of uh, uh, bringing the law schools into the post? I, I think this is happening to a degree, but bringing <coughs> the law schools into the post-bar exam part of legal training, and that is happening, as I say, at times, uh, in a setting where uh, this is like redefining the law school's goals, in in effect, but also being inclusive in terms of of these sort of ideological and and other kinds of uh, uh, concerns that, as I said, the existence of the Federalist Society uh, itself suggests. Is is there a question there? Uh, I think there is a question there, and it's a question that relates to... uh, uh, is the law school, does the law school have a role post-graduation in terms of the continuing education of the bar and its capability? Back to the mic. Obviously didn't do a very good job with that question. The panel has been about pre-bar exam accreditation right. standards. Why not abandon those standards entirely make the bar exam itself the standard, the gold standard, and then rethink legal education to encompass the broader experience of educating and training lawyers. 
That's really why not just abandon the existing system in favor of the bar exam as the gold standard? Well, a few few states you can you don't have still don't have to go to law school. Uh, many states had that and abolished it. I haven't looked at many state bar exams, but in my own state, uh, the questions on con law seem to be taken from the latest television show. So I'm not sure that I have a great. <laughs> I'm not sure that I have a great deal of confidence in state bar examiners either. Last question, or actually, last two questions, quickly. I was interested in what Tom Morgan said when I think he admitted with some candor that regulatory capture is inevitable in this field. I think that naturally leads to the question of even if there does have to be some one regulatory agency, which by the way I don't concede, but even if there does have to be one, why should it be the ABA given that the ABA has such an obvious conflict of interest and that the ABA represents the interests of practicing lawyers who more than anybody else have an interest in reducing the number of future people who can enter the profession so that all of them, or should I say all of us since I'm one of them, uh, have some ability to make more profits than otherwise. So even if there does have to be some regulatory agency, <coughs> why not at least create some agency which is as independent as possible from both practicing lawyers and the, the kind of law school interest that Saul Levmore pointed to in, in his presentation. So I guess why not, if we're going to have some, some agency, why not something other than the ABA, something divorced from the interests of lawyers and law schools? Yeah, I guess one response is for, uh, who would be in this organization and how would they get to know each other other than a large number of students who can't afford legal education because of the cost of accreditation inspired standards that have priced them out, number one, or people who haven't been able to join the bar because of those legal education costs as well, or people who face high legal fees because people are recouping the costs of legal education. I mean, I think one of the difficulties is just simply organizing that interest group to come up with a, a competing a bar association. The only time I can recall that occurring was not on the basis of economic questions, but on the basis of an ideological question when the ABA took its position uh, on the abortion issue. A significant number of lawyers left the ABA, formed an alternative organization, and is presently uh, in some states asking that alternative organization to be a competing accrediting agency. So that, that issue drove them to organize, but I'm not sure how the economically harmed organize. No, it may be that law schools benefit from this regulation, but only in a room of lawyers would people take this monopoly argument seriously. I mean, if you say to most Americans, you know, the problem is that the ABA is the regulator, and so it's suppressing the number of lawyers, as Alcoa might have in 1902, people would just fall on the floor laughing. You know? So I, I think that's just not the likely political route to explain to the country that we really could have 10 million more of us. And, and, the, the other thing I want to make sure everybody understands is that it's the Council of the Section of Legal Education and Admissions to the Bar that is the recognized accrediting agency. And it acts largely separately and independently from uh, the, the big a ABA. And the composition of the council is no more than 50% of the council or accreditation committee members can be law faculty and deans. You have to have three public members who are not lawyers. Uh, so there are many voices, and it's not the interests of the practicing bar that are overwhelmingly represented on the decision-making 
by the council or the accreditation committee. And the last question as we address the nation's critical lawyer shortage. (laughs) (laughs) A couple rhetorical questions. Um, Has the ABA accreditations really protected uh, consumers? Look at the disciplinary action uh, reports in many of the states. Um, Almost all of those lawyers are ABA trained. Um, California certainly has provided the alternative universe of providing a very high bar exam uh, uh, rigor and a low pass rate. And even ABA schools uh, are in the 50 to 60 percent pass rate. So why not allow that to be the bar rather than the ABA bar before you can get to the bar? Anybody, any takers? I think it's because California people don't want to follow it. Well, I, the, the other thing I would mention is that's, that's not a question for the folks here on the panel. That's a question for the state Supreme Courts that have chosen and continue to choose on the whole not to go the California route. Well, and it's an example of a state that does have a competitive system. I mean, there are multiple ways and, uh, to, to do it, uh, to, to handle this, and I think the California experience is a is an alternative, but it's not one that's been persuasive. Well, I have to head home to California. I want to thank Tom. <laughs> I want to head, uh, thank Tom Morgan, John Baker, Saul Levmore, and John Siebert, and to thank you. Good job, guys. Ladies and gentlemen, you must exit now to your right and then come back through the metal detectors. It's a regulation. I'm not on this. No, I'm not on this one. Uh, Press by 